Mike Moynihan has done a lot of things, and I'll, I'll mention a few here in a moment, but the most important thing is that he is an Oakcrest alumni father. <laughs> He's had two daughters who've, who've attended Oakcrest, and we're, we're very grateful for his relationship with the school. Uh, but dur during the day, he's the head of the upper school at the Heights uh, over in Potomac, Maryland, um, and a very accomplished uh, academic and, and thinker. He's got an undergraduate degree from uh, Notre Dame University, mm -hmm. a master's uh, in theology from Catholic University, uh, and he's the author of two books, uh, which will be for sale uh, after the, uh, the talk tonight, Decisive Parenting and The Father and His Family, and he's here tonight to share his his uh, wisdom about ways that we as dads can be a positive influence on our, our sons and our daughters as they uh, develop relationships and, and think about you know who, who they might be spending the rest of their life with as well. So with that, I give you Mike Moynihan. Thank you, Mike. Um, it's great to be here with you all tonight. I was very pleased when I was asked to come and just share some thoughts on a very easy topic to talk about. Just kidding. Um, uh, so yeah, a father's experience in raising sons and daughters who embrace God's plan for human love and marriage. Um, something that's a bit challenging today. Uh, just a, a very briefly a bit about me. Um, this is my family. And so this is Teresa who graduated from Oakcrest in 2018. She had a wonderful experience there. We're very thankful for everything she got at Oakcrest. She's currently at the University of Dallas. She's not our oldest. Our, our age range is right here. Michael is oldest. He's 22. He just turned 22. And little Luke here is three. So we have stair steps going from, from 22 down to three. Um, so that means that I have had the benefit of making a lot of mistakes as a parent. And so I want to talk a little bit about my thoughts on this, this, this topic and parenting from the perspective of one who has not followed all of this advice perfectly. So, you know, please um, uh, uh, don't think that, that, that I have this in, entirely down by any uh, stretch of the imagination. Um, so let's see. My work, as, as Mike was saying, is at the Heights School, and it was a few years ago that my daughter Margaret, right here, this little cute one, was in the hospital with pneumonia. She was getting a little bit of extra help breathing just as she was getting over the pneumonia, and I found myself sitting in a chair next to her bed with nothing to do. It was crazy. Like, I've never, I hadn't had that happen in years. So I started to, to take out my laptop and pull together some of the other things that I've been written and wrote a few more things and sent this off to the publisher. And a while later, they actually said they wanted to publish it. So I had my first book come out. Some of what I'll be talking about tonight is, is dealt with in, in, in this book. Um, and then they suggested to me a topic of a second book that I might want to take a look at. So I did and worked on this and sent that to the, to the, to the same publisher, Scepter and they published my, my second book. Um, so the family, uh, I really love this picture. It's by an author, an English author named John Dickinson Batten. And I believe it was, it was painted in 1886 and it's just titled The Family. And in looking at this, I think one of the things that comes across so clearly is the complementarity between husband and wife. You can really see 
how, you know, the mother, the father, and, and I'm not sure if this is supposed to be the Holy Family or not. Um, I, I, don't, I just don't know. But the complementarity that's shown there and the strength of the father and, and the necessary roles of both, I think, are just striking in, in uh, that. And um, let's see. Today, however, uh, when we look around, we see very much that the family is under attack. We see uh, that raising children who embrace and internalize God's plan for the love between a man and a woman uh, is something that is more challenging today than it was before. I know that when, when I grew up, um, generally what was happening in the culture around me was more or less supported of a healthy family life. And even you know, before that, probably even more so. But today, um, that is no longer the case. And so I think one thing we're faced with as fathers and as mothers also, is that we have to take proactive steps. Just having our children grow up in a healthy, loving family, that's a lot. But arguably, um, today, that's, that's not enough. So the cultural messages have really changed. And many parents are wondering, you know, how do I respond to this? Um, there's been all kinds of challenges uh, just from, sure, from our family, uh, there was a, 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 a family up the street from us who had a young girl. She was a little bit odd, but very sweet, and our children would play with her and get along very well with her. And one day she started asking no longer to be called Sarah, but to be called by a, a, a masculine name. And she started to undergo therapy to uh, take hormones and, and change the way she looked. Um, and, you know, that was challenging, like, like with my own children. How do we, you know, you need to be charitable towards her. You need to, to, to be kind. How exactly do you direct them? There are a lot of, of, of challenges and things today. So today, there are deliberate steps that are needed. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to share a little bit of what has sort of worked in, in our family. What I see now, I should have done in some cases and what are some of the proactive steps that parents can take. Um, so very first lessons when children are quite young. It's, it's good to talk about modesty in the home. Name that virtue. Little kids, uh, they'll run around and sometimes they will decide that it's going to be really fun to take their clothes off, to um, you know, do whatever. Little girls with their dresses, you know, sometimes the way that they pull their dresses up and stuff, but to say, no, 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 put that down. You know, let's try to be modest. Let's try to, to, to behave in a dignified way in that, in that way. Um, I think one thing that's really important for little children to hear is for their mother and their father to tell them the story about how they met. Tell them their own family story. Tell them, you know, they're already growing up in this family and they're experiencing love and they're experiencing care from both their mother and their father. And if you can just verbalize a couple simple things when they're very young, such as I was so thankful that I met your mother and I loved her very much. I knew she was going to be a very wonderful uh, wife and a wonderful mother to my children. And so 
you know, when the time was right, I got down on one knee and I proposed to her. And you're telling this to the little kids and especially your daughters, they're like, yeah, yeah, and tell us about the wedding and all this stuff too. They get really excited about that. And Angela and I have slightly different versions of the whole <laughs> proposal story. Um, according to my version, I got down on one knee and she was so overwhelmed that she fell over backwards and it's a good thing there was a chair behind her. According to her version, she just poo-poos that and she says, I know there was a chair there. But the, the, the children, they, just, they, love, they love to hear that and, they, and they, they come to understand, you know, mom and dad and love in, in that way. And so uh, reading them good stories, uh, literature that is supportive of a healthy vision of the family, talking to them about your family, talking to them about grandparents and relatives and telling those stories. That's, that's hugely formative when they're very young. And that's probably good enough until about third or fourth grade. And um, at that point, I think it's, it's appropriate for the first, father -son, the first of several father-son talks or mother-daughter talks. And I remember the, the first time that I did this, so I knew I, was, I knew I needed to do this. And I didn't really want to do it. Um, and so my son, Michael, he was actually in fifth grade at the time. And so I came up to him and I said, you know, Michael, um, it'd be good if you and I took a walk this weekend somewhere and uh, we talked about some stuff. And he goes, okay, great. And I goes, okay, so Saturday morning, we'll do that. We'll uh, connect and, and go out and, and, and talk. And he's like, okay, sure. Well, w what's it about, Dad? And I said, well, it's just about some things that fathers, you know, tell their sons at, at this point. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, fathers and sons do this about this time. So it's, it's, it's good. And so Michael's like, okay, fine. That was enough. So we get in the car and we start driving away from our house. And I'm thinking, uh, okay, how can I stall? Hey, let's pull into the grocery store here. And, and you want a donut? You can get a donut, get a little treat, you know, try to make it like that. So, so we did. We got a treat. And finally, we got to this park that has a lot of hiking trails and there's very few people that go there and so we started walking along the trails and you know I said Michael I just wanted to to uh, let you know a little bit about this amazing plan that God has for the love between a man and a woman and you know I retold the story of uh, of um, meeting his uh, his mom and and retold a little bit of the family story but then basically just said, you know, in God's plan, you know, a man and a woman will, will, will fall in love. Um, it's a very beautiful thing, and um, it's good. And, you know, and then I kind of asked him what questions he had, you know, what things that, that he wanted to talk about with regards to this. And he brought up some stuff, and it was just an absolutely uh, uh, fantastic experience. I mean, he did bring up a couple tough things and I tried to, to answer them. And, and as I was talking with him, I realized that I had to let him know, not only is this plan that God has incredibly beautiful, but it's something that is very much under attack today and that he needs to stand up and try to be strong. You know, don't tolerate people talking badly about women. Real men are defenders of women. They look to take care of women. They look to take care of others. Um, and a bit about what that means. And just kind of, you know, got to the point in the talk where I wanted to give a little bit more information. And so um, what 
I have come to realize is that the best way to do that is to talk in very general terms. I think it's important to respect the innocence of the children. They um, might have questions and we can answer the questions, but when it comes to giving information about the marital act, I would say things like, you know, the husband and the wife, according to God's plan, come together in the marital embrace. And through that marital embrace, God blesses that union and can bless it with, with children. And that's a beautiful thing. Some people, God doesn't bless with children. And that's because that's part of his plan. And that's fine, too. But that's the way it is. And, and they may or may not, at that young age, have more questions about that. But the important thing is by um, connecting with your sons, if your fathers, or your wives with, with the daughters is probably the best way to have it work. Although in some circumstances, it, it could be necessary to you know, father to daughter if mom's not in the picture, or mother to son, or, or maybe there's a grandfather or a grandmother or somebody you could help out too. But what that basically lets them know is that they can come and ask questions. You know, any questions you have, you can come and ask me, and I'll be able to try to help you and that's never going to be a problem to come and, and, and talk to me about these things. And I have to tell you, there's been a few times where my children have come to me and they've said, you know, Dad, I'm, I'm really worried about something. I wanted to talk to you about it. And then out it comes. And I am just so profoundly thankful that they have done that to me, that they've, they've come to me with this and, you know, I'm able to, to, to answer that. And so I would say, you know, this, this first talk uh, should be followed up maybe six months, maybe a year and a half, um, whatever, with, with, with another one. And so, you know, my sons now know, you know, dad, you know, dad, dad's asking me to come out and talk with him again. He's going to touch base. He's going to just make sure I don't have any questions. Everything's good. You know, and I'll, and I'll be begin the second talk, you know, just remember what we talked about last time. I just want to see if you had any questions. Um, and maybe uh, bring up something else, okay? At some point, when the time is right, it might not be fourth grade or third grade, you wanna, you're gonna wanna be able to get into a little bit more with, with your sons. So, pornography is, a, is an important topic that's gonna have to be raised at some point. And, you know, I remember raising this with some of my, my sons, you know, you know how, there's pictures sometimes even just in the supermarket where they're showing women in a way that you could never imagine your mother or your sister um, uh, looking. And it's not good. It's not good the way they're showing women. They're, they're, and, and right away, you know, the guys, they're like, yeah, Dad, I, I know that. There's, there's stuff out there, some bad pictures about, about women out there. And I go, well, there's some people out there who try to make even really bad pictures about women. And, you know, that's what's called pornography. And a lot of these people are doing it in such a way that they want to get people to be attracted to this. Um, you know, it's funny, I, I, uh, you guys might be familiar with an old show called The Simpsons. So there's one uh, incident where um, it showed Bart Simpson. Uh, he encountered something which was obviously pornographic content. And he looks at it and he goes, ugh. That's disgusting, but yet strangely compelling and attractive at the same time. <laughs> so kind of that, 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 that notion that, 
that, you know, this stuff is, is you're playing with fire here. You don't want to go there. And then with some of my uh, subsequent children, I got the idea that it would be good to do this. And I'm not necessarily, this is something you could take or leave. But um, I would tell them, so, you know, you have to be strong, stand up for what's right. If people talk bad against women, you know, tell them to stop that. Or at the very minimum, get out of there. You can't, like, by your presence, indicate that you're okay with that type of talk. And if you're on the playground and somebody pulls out his phone, and on the phone there's this picture that is obviously what we've been talking about, pornography, I want you to reach out, grab that phone, throw it down on the ground, and stomp on it to make sure that it is totally smashed. And then turn to that boy and say, if you have a problem with that, tell your dad to call my dad. And then walk away. Okay, so I remember very distinctly my son, Stephen. And Stephen's got his big smile on his face. He's, he's got, he got this really nasty grin on his face. He was like, this is so cool. I am going to smash a kid's phone and not get in trouble for it. But... Um, it, you know, I, I've never had, had a father call me and they've never actually had to smash a phone. But, but the point is one in which that odd moment of, of the simultaneous repulsion and attraction, if a, if, a, if a youngster encounters that, he doesn't have experience to know what to do in a situation like that. Like he almost needs someone to model the correct response, which is the bravest thing to do when faced with this is to flee is to reject it, to do something definitive that is no. And to also let him know, hey, dad's got your back on this. This is something that's incredibly important. So that's kind of why I do it. I know some people think, you know, you're kind of, it's, kind of, it's kind of too much telling kids to smash phones and stuff, but whatever, I don't know. But that, that's, that's kind of the point, all right? Um, you know, other things that are going to come up, issues associated with, with uh, puberty. I've had questions about abortion. Um, it's really hard. I mean, it's one of those things where when a young child starts to wrap their mind around what's really happening in an abortion, that, wait, they're, they're, they're killing the baby? Yeah, it's really, it's really, really bad. You've got to pray a lot. You've got to understand, we're, we're in the middle. This world is a battle, okay? We are in the middle of a battle. There are transcendent forces that are beyond us that are fighting. And the highest stakes in this game is really souls. And, you know, the devil has his plan. God's stronger. God is stronger. But the devil does have his plan. And abortion is one of the horrible things that is out there. Um, so, and as the, the boys got older, too, you know, I've had to bring up just talking about the virtue of guarding your heart, you know, keeping your heart kind of pure, not letting it, it uh, go out seeking things just kind of with an, with an unguarded openness. Um, the virtue of chastity. And, and really just to, to, to keep in mind as you're, as you're talking to your children that a lot of these, these matters have a lot more yes in them than no. Like, I do think it's really helpful to begin a conversation about this. You know, not, I want to tell you about how this works, okay? Let's go into the mechanics of, of all this. I'm going to tell you how it works. I mean, today we're sort of overly impressed with just efficient causality, 
we want to know, you know how things function and stuff. And that reductionism is really part of the problem with the issues surrounding human sexuality. So it's extremely helpful if you can place this in the proper context. You know, God has an amazing plan for the love between a man and a woman. And this is how it works. This is, how, this is what that plan is about. So it's a lot more yes there than, than no. Um, okay. So daughters. <laughs> so if you have these types of conversations with your sons, your wife, has similar conversations with the daughters, and they'll be very similar. Like a lot of these issues are also going to be very important for mothers and daughters to talk about. Uh, the, you know, it's a little different. I mean, from what I understand, uh, um, having raised some daughters and see them grow up, the matters of the heart are a bit different. Challenges take on slightly different forms and flavors, but it's very, but it's very similar. But these are, 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 are conversations which are best done in the context of the family. That same family that has provided that type of love and protection to these youngsters ever since they were little. I mean, they understand God's plan for the love between a man and a woman because of their experience growing up in your family. So when you teach, you are teaching this with an authority that no other institution or person can have. I mean, sure, at a, at a school like the Heights or Oakcrest, and, and it, it will appropriately be covered in, in moral uh, theology classes and stuff, that these are the, this is the sixth commandment, this is the ninth commandment. But the type of personal, intimate conversation that really surrounds this, this has to be something between a parent and a child. And so uh, I found over the years that even though at first it was, it was hard to wrap my head around the fact that I needed to do this. It was just such an incredibly powerful, uh, good thing. Um, so what can fathers do with, with daughters? I think with daughters, we have the absolute amazing opportunity to play one of the most wonderful roles in their embracing of God's plan for the love between a man and a woman. And it is simply this. It is to take them out once in a while for some treats and conversations. So to just say to you know, the little girl, they might be uh, eight, nine years old, whatever, 10, 11, 12, all the way up. Um, I haven't taken you out for a while, let's, let's go out. And we go out and you kind of know what they like. This one likes milkshakes at Chick-fil-A, whatever. So we go get a milkshake at Chick-fil-A, sit down, and you know, when she's going to the car, you hold the door open for her, close the door for her, uh, treat her with a certain amount of refinement and elegance, ask her about uh, how she's doing. Do you want the windows down? Would you rather have the air conditioning on? You know, little, little details. Be attentive to her. And then when you get there, ask her what she'd like. Small talk. Total small talk. You know, how are things going? What do you want to talk about? And sometimes they'll talk and sometimes they won't talk and, and you know, whatever. And I, I've even had it happen with sons before too, like talking with them. Do you have any questions? Uh, no, not really. Are we going to be able to watch the baseball game? You know, and that's like, that's fine, that's great, okay? But the, but the, the, the small talk with the daughters, and then come back home, um, that's it. And what ends up happening when dad does that is she is forming in her mind an image of how a man should treat her. And every man who would ever aspire to date your daughter 
will uh, be judged by her according to how you treated her with consideration and refinement. You would be like spreading this protective shield over her such that if any guy came up to her and was like, you know, hey, how you doing? You know, she'd have nothing to do with him. She would know this is not the way my dad treated me. This is not right. So she's going to be judging men according to the standard that you've set. Another thing that, that so I think that's probably the, the most important thing that fathers can do with, with their daughters. Yes? Can I ask a question about that? So I've only got the one daughter. I'm a total novice. You know? Yes. <laughs> but um, we do that. You know, I take her out frequently for, for treats and conversations, and we have a great time. Great. But the, the question is, do, do you want to sort of dr drive that out? Like, you know, when, when you start going out with guys, expect them to treat you the way, the way I treat you. Or, or, and if you don't, do you then create a situation where it's like, well, that's what happens when I go out with dad, but when I go out with a boyfriend, it's totally different. Yep. Right? So it's like, do you, do you leave it as an unspoken conclusion? Or do you kind of want to emphasize? I think your wife, your wife can, can uh, uh, specify that she'd probably be in a better position. This is my gut reaction to this, too, and I'm, I don't know 100% for sure. But, you know, if your wife, when she's having the type of conversations with your daughter that I've been talking about us having with our sons, if she was able to say to her, you know, look, um, your father uh, is, is a great man. And I'm so happy that he is, is my husband and also your father. And you need to make sure that whenever you're thinking about anyone who would perhaps, you might perhaps be interested in dating, hold them to that standard. Make sure they treat you like, he, like he's treated you. I mean, it just, I think coming from your wife, it could be even more powerful. But yeah, that would be my thing. So, Modesty. Um, sometimes teenage girls uh, will really get into fashion, and that's great because fashion is a, is a good thing. Um, but a lot of the fashions that are out there are not necessarily fashions that show the full dignity of the human person. Um, for us men, it's not really our place to be the ones like, looking constantly at our daughters and saying, hmm, young lady. <laughs> so that's almost, it's almost better if some of that comes from mom. And if mom says, I'm not so sure that that's the best, the best outfit for you. But the important role I think that we can have is to support mom, okay? And um, if necessary, to do so even a little bit strongly. Um, and one of the strongest ways could be a very simple statement of, you know, I, I kind of agree with your mother on this. Um, and I don't really like the way that what you're wearing, I don't like how that's going to make certain guys look at you. If she hears that from dad, and that will be like, okay, usually that's, that's all it would, that would take for that. Um, and then with regards to, to dating, how many of you have heard of the book or read the book Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters by Meg Meeker? Okay. That's a great book. I mean, she gets across, the title in a way says, says it all about that book, that the strength of a father um, is an incredible shield of protection around his daughters. So if she's at the age where she is going to be going out 
um, make sure you meet her date. Don't let it happen that the guy pulls up and texts her and she runs out the door and gets in the car and drives away. You know, take the effort of, of letting her know, you know he needs to come to the door. And when he comes to the door, shake his hand, smile at him, um, ask him, so what are your plans for the night? Uh, oh, okay, so you're planning on coming back at 11? Okay, great, well, I'll be expecting you at 11. And then at 11, meet him, how did it go? Did you have a nice time? Very good. Thank you for bringing her home when you said you would. <laughs> that is, is, is just those steps right there. She knows that she has somebody who's protecting her, and the guy knows it also. So <laughs> these are, you know, kind of important things. So dating. Um, as the children get older, and by the way, if, if, um, even if a lot of these, these talks don't happen you know, when they're really young or, or uh, a lot of these messages, it's, it's not too late. Like you can still get across a lot of the, the important aspects of God's plan for the love between a man and a woman. And as a parent, even if you haven't had these conversations till high school, it can still, it can still be done. Um, but as the, the youngsters start to get older and they start to notice, girls notice boys, boys notice girls, and dating becomes a real possibility, one thing that it's important to have a conversation with, and I think this is, again, best between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, is just the human heart. You know, what the human heart is like. So in a way, I mean, our, our hearts are looking to form attachments. They're looking for love. They're looking for uh, something that is going to fulfill them. Uh, St. Augustine said this incredibly well at the beginning of his confessions when he said, you know, Lord, you made us for yourselves, for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. I mean, ultimately, what our hearts have been created for is to be fulfilled by the love of God. And as we travel through this world, there are many good things that God sends us as gifts uh, to help us along the way. And these are all good, but they need to have their, their to be put in their, in their proper place. Um, with regards to relationships that are of a more romantic nature between young men and young women, you know, these motions of the heart are ordered towards forming some type of close union, okay? I mean, that's, that's been built into our beings. And um, ultimately, this is something that leads towards marriage. Now, if people are beginning to get into these personal romantic relationships when they're far too young to practically be married, that's difficult. Now, I say that knowing a couple examples of some wonderful men that I work with at the Heights who ended up marrying their high school sweethearts, uh, Andy Reid and Colin Gleason. Great guys. And they had a long uh, uh, courtship with with their now, now wives and have wonderful uh, uh, families, just fantastic men. But most of the time, when teens are involved in these close personal relationships, it doesn't end that way. More often, it's gonna end with some type of heartbreak. And that's why it's a very reasonable message just to, to let, let your sons and daughters know that you know, getting too close to someone at, at, at a young age 
this is very challenging. It's very hard. Um, it's better not to until you're at a place where this relationship can properly uh, develop. So college campuses, I think, are particularly difficult in this regard because what can happen on college camp campuses is, you know, you put, first of all, it's kind of crazy to think about. You, you take a group of 18 to 22-year-olds, you give them 15 to 18 hours of, of, of class to go to a week, and then you have them live in dorms and try to figure out how to structure the rest of their time themselves and kind of hope it all goes really, really well. Um, it's kind of, you know, in a way it's a little bit, but what can end up happening with a young man and a young woman on a college campus is they can start to uh, spend a tremendous amount of time with each other. The relationship is developing almost in a void. Whereas traditionally, these relationships would happen within a, a community, within a family, extended family are nearby. But on the college campus, it's like if, if they don't intentionally take steps to make sure they slow it down and have other interests, like I'm going to get involved in these other things too, and you should do the same thing, but are just focusing just on each other, that could be a really, really hard thing. Um, in high school, the best uh, situation is group dating or activities sponsored by parents. I've had uh, my sons and daughters involved with just a lot of fun on these things. A parent will open their home up and invite uh, you know, high, school, high school boys and girls over. They'll have a game night. They will, uh, I had one situation where there were some boys who, Heights boys who cooked dinner for a bunch of girls that they invited over, which was nice, and, and, and served it. Uh, different church activities, you know, youth group activities with, with service involved can be good. Uh, getting together for an ice skating uh, event or a sledding event or something. But to, to do things in groups is, is very good. Okay. Um, so, and of course, as you're talking about matters of the heart and leading towards the possibility of marriage, it's a natural opportunity to also talk about vocation in general. We're all going to be happiest if we follow and we seek to generously follow whatever God is calling us towards. And, you know, it's great to be able to have a, a, a teenager who you just encourage as a mother or a father, pray. Pray for what your vocation is. Ask God to um, let him know the direction that you should go. Maybe you will be called to single life. Maybe you'll be called to marriage. But, you know, embrace that call as what God is asking from you, and you'll be very happy. Um, do I have time for one more? I can do five more minutes? Okay. So this gets to the, the, the last topic, which here is a little bit on the side, but I think it's very closely related. And this is the whole topic of screens. So I recently read this incredibly interesting book. How many of you have heard of the book iGen by Jean Twenge? I'm not sure if I'm saying your last name right. Okay, good. I get to tell you about it. This is a, uh, she's a social scientist who has been studying a lot of longitudinal data over many, many years to see trends on what teenagers are doing differently now than in the past. 
So she was studying this data and she noticed that around 2007, there was this incredible spike in a lot of the metrics she was looking at. What before had been trending fairly evenly, all of a sudden the trend took a sharp turn up or down, depending on what it was. And she started looking at it, she said, this is bizarre. I've never seen anything like this, this happen before. And so she started to get into it and she wrote this book, iGen, um, as what she thinks the next generation after the millennials should be called. They should be called the iGen. They're the generation that has grown up knowing nothing but constant connectivity. Connectivity through smartphones, um, connectivity through social media in a way that no previous generation uh, uh, knew. So here are some of the trends. These, are, these are, are, are very, very interesting. Less time spent out with friends. Much, much more time spent at home. Um, teenagers are less likely to get driver's licenses. The average age at which teenagers are getting driver's licenses started to skyrocket around 2007. Um, less alcohol consumption. Less dating, less sex, uh, not getting jobs, okay, so they, they're, they're, the incidence of teenagers getting jobs is, is way down. Much, much higher incidences of depression and anxiety skyrocketed. And suicide rates among young people have skyrocketed. So t since 2008 to like last year when the book was written, the suicide rate for um, young women more than doubled. Since 08 to the same time for men, it almost doubled. Okay, so they're not doing all these things. What are they spending their time doing? And a lot of what the time is being spent on, not surprisingly, given the title iGen, is in this electronic world. They're connecting and actually socializing and, and creating a virtual presence for other people to see on this world. Uh, in, this, in this online world. Um, and this is in some sense obviously going against our nature and who we are and the type of communion we're called to be given the type of, of complex worry and anxiety that the kids have. One of the things she said is that the children are growing up very slowly. They're very risk averse. They're afraid of danger, but they define danger not so much as just physical danger which incidentally, they're the ones who do drive are some of the safest drivers among teens we've ever seen. Um, but the type of danger that they're most concerned with is emotional danger. You know, I don't want to be shamed in any way. I have to cultivate this image. So she was digging for the story behind the data and she would ask them, you know, why do you not drink alcohol, these teenagers? And they're like, you know, uh, that's dangerous. If I, if I were to drink, and somebody were to come and take a picture of me and it didn't look, I was doing something stupid and that got posted on social media, that would be incredibly dangerous for me. Like these are the type of, it's, it's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety just built into the, to the, the whole nature of what they're dealing with. Um, and so I got, you know, thinking about this and, and especially the less dating, the less sex, although, one of the most disturbing things in the book, this is more applies to college campuses, but apparently they, there's 
Um, there's a lot of interesting phrases. So some of the things that happen on college campuses, like safe spaces and trigger warnings and those things, are an attempt to get the administration of the college to provide that type of protected environment that the parents had been providing up to that point. But they're very concerned about any type of emotional harm that could come to them. So they view sexual relations, or at least some of them, this is the trend, as something which needs to be done very dispassionately. So a sexual encounter should be an incredibly casual encounter. You want to avoid catching feelings. Um, uh, so um, avoid any type of personal involvement with the, with the other person. Um, so the, uh, the deeper challenge here that I see um, when I look at, at this, I look at the reality of the iGen generation, and I'm not trying to say that I have the perfect answer to this, is just to put it in context, um, we've been dealing with a period, at least in the Western world for the last 500 years, of what Pope Benedict called the dehellenization of the West, which is sort of the setting aside of reason or the limiting of reason. Uh, Benedict says the self-imposed limitation of the scope of human reason that, that has been happening in stages um, up until now. And there's a really interesting article that I read not too long ago by Walker Percy, who wrote in the 1970s. It was an article on education. And he was mentioning that um, today people are overly impressed with experts. They, they're looking to experts. This was in the 1970s. They're looking to experts to validate that the experience that they're having is authentic. And he starts out giving an example of going to see the Grand Canyon. And the first person that discovered the Grand Canyon saw this thing in all its majesty. And that now when you go to the Grand Canyon, you are experiencing the Grand Canyon behind the structures that have been put up by the National Park Service. So it is a mediated experience. And it's never going to be exactly the same as what it was when it was actually encountered. And so he would say things like, in education, it's almost better if a student comes into a biology class and expects to do a dissection, but instead sees a Shakespeare sonnet. Like, that would be this type of cognitive dissident that would, would help that, that student to be able to at least see something in a real way, as opposed to this order, overly structured and mediated way. Um, so that was the 1970s, really looking to the quote unquote experts and distrusting our own reason to be able to have an authentic grasp of reality. With the screens and the, the, the whole iGen problem, what's really happening is not looking to the experts, but it's surrendering freedom to the collective. It's surrendering freedom to the group and looking for validation from them, which is a very dangerous position to be in. So however we as parents try to crack this nut or try to govern this, this is critically important for the relationships that our sons and daughters are going to form. Because the relationships, I mean the online relationships that are being cultivated, they're not real. And you know, the, 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 they're, they're not in accord with what's ultimately going to be uh, humanly fulfilling. So on a totally separate topic, um, I think that it's heroic on the part of parents to encourage a certain amount of fostering of, of silence in children and even boredom. 
Like, I love it when my kids say they're bored. I just tell them, that's great. I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. You know? Because it's out of that boredom that they're going to actually learn to activate their freedom and make a commitment to something. If they just medicate that boredom away instantly with the next uh, little dopamine hit from looking at something, I don't know, whatever it is, an overweight cat on a social media thing, whatever. I don't know. But, but if that's the, 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 yeah, so. Yeah, overweight cats are a big thing. Reading right. to your kids, Mike. Isn't that something you're a big fan of? Reading to the kids. Literature is incredibly important. So, um, yeah, like right now I'm reading to my little girls, Lucy and Margaret, the series by Ralph Moody. Starts with Little Britches. Just a wonderful series to, to read. They love it. Um, even reading Lives of the Saints at night. I mean, that's a natural way for a father to have a direct role in the education. Of, of their children and build those types of relationships. I mean, almost always it's, you know, I've been reading for a while, I'm getting tired, I'm kind of almost falling asleep. It's like, read another chapter, Dad. I'm like, guys, I, I can't. <laughs> I'm going to fall asleep. I, I got to go to bed. Um, but it's, 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 uh, it's delightful. Um, so. Sorry. Questions? Questions, yes. I have three students in college right now. Michael and Thomas, are my two oldest, are at the University of Notre Dame. Teresa, my daughter, who graduated from Oakcrest in 2018, is at the University of Dallas. Um, so co uh, college, I mean, there's, there's a lot that both the University of Notre Dame and the University of Dallas have to offer. At Notre Dame, there's kind of more craziness in addition to all the great good things they have. And they do have a lot of very good things there. Um, and at Dallas, there's a lot of really wonderful things there as well. But the environments are very, very difficult. And uh, just talking to my sons, Michael and Thomas, they, you know, and the things that they share with me, just trying to, to help their friends, the, the number of, of college students that are just... Um, you know, problems with the, the, the online world. Uh, the problems with pornography are, are, are tremendous. The, the relationships that they are developing, very challenging. Michael and Thomas were involved in an effort to try to get the University of Notre Dame to install internet filters on their Wi-Fi throughout the campus. And it ended up failing, but kind of Catholic U saw that a bunch of Notre Dame students were pushing for it. And so Catholic U, I guess, Actually, the students there adopted that same approach, and it worked at Catholic U. Um, so is that, Tom, do you know, has that been in place now? Do they have the filters at Catholic U? Yeah. You have a son? Covenant Eyes, I guess, is another one I've heard along those lines. Um, there's an awful lot of time that can be wasted uh, on college campuses, and idleness is, in some ways, the devil's workshop. So. When you just think about the whole environment itself, you can, you can see that there's challenges there. And you know, I think even youngsters who've been very exceptionally well-formed, that they've gotten a lot from their home life and from a school like Oakcrest, you, you know, support them with a lot of prayer when they go to college, because that, be, that, be, that can be a challenging thing. My, my three that are in college are thriving um, for the most part.
there, but but uh, they're they have a lot of work to do to help a lot of their friends. So, I, I know in uh, Meg Beaker's book she talks about um, kind of the the, the uh, rebellious girl who basically is acting out, and at the same time, what the father may not realize is, is she's she's asking, kind of begging that the father kind of sets a boundary and kind of sets certain standards. Without sharing any personal experiences, I don't know, do you, do you have any thoughts about, you know, when, a, when, when your daughter or your son really, you know, challenge you and, 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 and basically make your job as a father harder, you know, how you approach that? Yeah, I agree with Meg Meeker on that. I think that um, strong father, strong daughters, the title says a lot of it. Um, if, if you can do it with naturalness and, a, and authority, as opposed to being, you know, authoritarian, that's, that's so, much, so much the better. But as far as children giving parents problems, I have a phenomenal amount of experience with that. Um, it's, it's, you know, what do, what do you want to talk about here? Uh, you've seen, uh, I, I imagine any, a lot of you guys have, have sure seen it all too, from, you know, the bickering and the, the, all those little things to the bigger things to the, in this book right here, Decisive Parenting, I, 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 I talk a little bit about um, what I call the human engineering heresy that I think is something that we've inherited from Rousseau. Um, it's this notion that a child is this innocent little angel that could be corrupted by the wrong environment. Maybe it was because a parent raised his voice a little too loud. Maybe it was because they didn't eat the right organic food. Maybe it was because, you know, the bully at the playground uh, was a little bit, you know, off. But if they had just been given the proper nurturing all along, they would grow up perfectly fine. Everything would be great. And this is, uh, a lot of this thinking is behind so many parents today. Like mothers especially. Um, my, my, my wife does this and she catches herself doing it and knows she shouldn't do it. She blames herself when her kids do something bad. You know, you gotta tell her, you're like, look, just be realistic here. I mean, little kids, they're, they're undisciplined, they're, they're wonderful, they're delightful, they have this incredible fresh vision of reality in the world, it's great to see, but they also have original sin and they have concupiscence. And you know, just like you don't say, Oh, you don't want to eat your vegetables? Here, have some more carbohydrates. Just eat all carbohydrates this meal. I'm going to tell you, my kids would just eat all the carbohydrates up. They wouldn't eat any, any, anything else. I mean, like, that's not good for them. So you don't do that. Um, do you want to take piano lessons to your seven-year-old? You know, is that something you want to do? Oh, okay. Do you want to go visit grandma? Oh, okay. No, there's some things that are just good. Look, you're going to take piano lessons because that's a good thing to do. And we're going to go visit grandparents, and I don't care if you don't want to go. We honor grandparents. We honor that. That's what we do, you know? So a lot of this just, just naturally takes place. I, I mean, it has to be this, this, this kind of realistic understanding. And then, you know, you know kids will act up. And, um, I mean, I, being authoritarian is a problem. Uh, one of the examples I give in, in this book is a little lad who... Uh, for the first time is being willfully defiant and mom is trying to get the baby to take a nap and this little guy 
is told to go into his room and take a nap, and this little boy, maybe three, four years old, starts slamming his door. You guys probably had all kinds of similar situations happen, right? And he's slamming his door, and he's slamming his door precisely because he knows it is annoying his mom and preventing his younger baby sister from getting to sleep and his mom getting the rest that she needs, all right? So what could you do? Could you, you, you step in and give the kid a whack? Well, he's kind of controlling the situation if you do that, right? The best thing to do is to find some way to redefine the situation. Oh, you're slamming the door? You've just lost your privilege of taking a nap. Sit on the steps here. That's where you're to stay until I tell you you can get up and then go off and do your own thing. And then he knows in a way, if I get up, mm, then I could really be in trouble. But you've taken the, the situation and redefined it yourself with an appropriate exercise of authority. I mean, there's an incredible need for parental leadership and the exercising of authority. Um, children have to learn that they need to obey their parents from when they're little. Any questions? So what are your thoughts about phones? I mean, it seems like, yes, there's been this, this great cultural decline, and I guess you could say uh, for, for the devil's work, the, the iPhone is a force multiplier mm -hmm. in which uh, they are uh, on it all the time. Um, I, I remember uh, the first time it, it occurred to me was I saw my son's team, sports team together. We were all out to lunch with the parents. And they weren't talking to each other. They were all on their phone around a table and I was in disbelief. Um, but it seems to damage them in many ways. So I'm just wondering as a practical matter, do you, um, when do you give a kid a phone? When do you? Senior in high school. Senior year in high school. <coughs> it's depending. I think a phone is for uh, an adult. <laughs> and if my senior in high school has reached the point where I consider them to be an adult, Adult meaning that they've internalized the, the character lessons that we want them to have so that they're oriented in the right direction. Then, while they're still under my roof, we'll let them have a phone, but still severely limited. I have um, a senior in high school at home now, Joseph, um, and he just got a smartphone for the first time very recently. And you know, and letting him and talking to him about it, you know, talking to him about the real issues of wasting time and the real issues of having it dissipate his attention, his personality, the, the, you know, the lack of connection with reality. You know, so we sort of agreed that this is going to be used as a tool and used appropriately as a tool. And every night at eight o'clock, it's going to be up in mom and dad's bedroom on the charging station. Um, it is, it is, you know, a lot of times I have this app on my phone. So like if I walk into the house and I see what Wi-Fi is on, I just go through and shut down all the Wi-Fi. It's great. But uh, <laughs> the, 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 um, so even, even like, like most of the time that Joseph's at home, probably the Wi-Fi is shut down. So it's, it's, very, much, it's very much limited. So he uses it as a, a professional tool. And I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with him too. I said, look, Joseph, when I was your age, you're, you're way more mature than I am. Okay, you are in a much better position right now, you, where you are at this age, than I was. I wouldn't trust my 17, 18 year old self with that thing. I wouldn't have trusted it. It would have messed me up, okay? There's no way that I, I, I mean, I can't imagine if I had that type of temptation in my hand 
all the time what that could have done to me as a person. So, you know, be aware of that. So, yeah, and we've got some pushback, and every once in a while the kids will come, I'm the only one yes. who doesn't have it. But then you really start asking, and all the parents are saying, you know, I, I don't want to get my son or daughter a phone, but so-and-so says they're the only one. Oh, my son says he's the only one. My son says they're the only one. My daughter's the only one. Yeah, yeah, so it's like, did they get like a flip phone before that so you could communicate with them? Or? Well, it used to be flip phones were flip phones. Now flip phones are smartphones. Right. So there's not really any option there. So if we need to communicate with them, we'll let them borrow one of our phones. Like if they have to, if they're going someplace where we're like, okay, you really do need a phone. You can still buy a flip phone, Target. That's why I'm giving to Flip phone, Target. Yeah, there's, there's. You do have to be careful with them because they can get internet. We did that with one of our kids. And then later we found out that they're actually they're actually getting onto like YouTube. Oh, on flip phones, yeah. I, I, we found that the iPhone is better because you can really lock it down. You can take off the the browser. Yeah, you can take off the browser. Yeah, no, that's right. So I mean, and that's just that's the thing too. I mean, some families do that and they do it exceptionally well. They make sure that the phone is a device to call and text home, and it doesn't become this this uh, device associated with these really serious problems. I mean, just to look at the empirical data and to see the mental health issues that are coming up. Um, you know, the book iGen, one of the things she does is she, she's very aware as a social scientist that a correlation does not mean a cause. So she's studying several different metrics to determine if there's actually a causal effect. And she, she comes to the conclusion that there is, that basically this, this type of world that the kids are living in is causing this severe mental health crisis. So I meant enough.